0: And like uh, one time I was at a book fair and this little sixth grader, as I was teaching eighth grade at the time, was looking at this book called The Bikini Murders. And she kept picking up, putting it down, picking up, putting it down. And I was just like, did you want to buy that book? And she just looked at me and said, my teacher won't let me. It's not my Lexile level. And I was like, honey, if you mm-hmm. want to buy that book, buy that book. Here's my room number. If you hate it or can't read it, I'll buy it off you. How about that? <laughs> and, and it turned out that that, child was actually the child of the school psychologist. Like I didn't know who that was at the time. And that inspired her to read the entire series. Her kid had always hated to read. So we just removed the barrier right that we as adults have self-imposed on children because Mm -hmm. we believe they can't do it and we keep reminding them they can't do it because we set all these limits on them why don't we just flip the conversation and look to empower them or inspire them to do the things they never considered they could do what would that do
1: Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast. We're your hosts, Hannah Park and Catherine Caldwell. As educators,
2: we feel it's our responsibility to reach all students that walk through our door. However, we realize that every year there are children in our classroom that we feel are put on the back burner because we lack the resources, knowledge, and support to provide for them everything that they need and rightfully deserve.
1: often these learners are eventually referred to as being gifted but the problem with that is there's no universal definition of what it means to be gifted which leads to a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of inconsistencies so knowing that we're not the only educators who feel this way we've decided to work in tandem with ncagt to interview entrepreneurs community leaders stakeholders and experts throughout the field of gifted education to uncover the truth about what it truly means to be gifted, spread awareness, and hopefully be an instrument of change.
2: This podcast is for anyone who is seeking to learn more about gifted education, parents, educators, and learners from all walks of life. Our organization is committed to being an instrument of change. Today's episode is all about Dr. Danielle Sullivan. She is a passionate educator, charged with supporting students, teachers, parents, and administrators with services, curriculum, and leadership in gifted education. With over 18 years of experience both in the classroom and at central office, she brings a level of expertise to guide policy, practice, procedure, and professional development as an AIG coordinator for a public school system in North Carolina. She's presented at the National Gifted Education Convention, the College of William and Mary, at the North Carolina Annual Gifted Conference, and served as an educational consultant for districts around the state. She's also a board member of the North Carolina Association for the Gifted and Talented since 2012 and now serves as the current president. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. It was such a treat. She brings such high energy and passion and excitement, and it left us both pumped up. So we hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Welcome, Dr. Sullivan. We are so excited to sit down with you today. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: All right. So we
2: read through your biography that you sent, and there was a couple of things that stood out to me. I saw one thing that you said, your dad, a quote that he had said to you that you always kept near and dear to you. And it really stood out. I was like, that's such a good quote. So I just wanted to ask you if you could maybe explain it a little bit more. So the quote was, it's what you do when you don't have to, that will determine where you'll be when you can't help it. Um, so, if you could just explain how that shaped you as an educator,
0: sure. So, my approach in everything I do is to try to be more proactive than reactive, right? So, I spend a lot of time sort of preparing for what could be. Um, events or effects that might happen from decisions that are made so that I have a good perspective of the realm, so that when stuff happens, we already have a tentative plan in place so that we're not scrambling to try to get things done. So, in short, being more intentional about what one is doing when they're you know trying to serve students or stakeholders or you know talking to parents just so that everybody can be on the same page in that page of collaboration instead of that sort of you know how it gets when it escalates and nobody wants to listen or work together so mm-hmm. that quote has really shaped how I approach everything that I do um, in my world
2: I love that because I feel like that's good for life but really mm-hmm. you know in our world of education that's so good because things are always being thrown our way and, and having that, you know, being proactive, um, that mindset is really helpful. Um, and then another, one other thing that really stood out to me was when you talked about, um, your meeting with the assistant principals Mm -hmm. about, um, identifying students and you had mentioned someone who said that they felt like their child had been like looked over and wasn't identified and
0: they should have been. Can you talk a little bit
2: more to that situation? Cause I think a lot of people might relate to that.
0: Sure. So that conversation was a conversation between two assistant principals who were both at um, a Title I school and their kids, of course, attended the school in which they worked at, which usually is how it goes when you're, you know, a parent, teacher, and your kids, that's how it works. And mm-hmm. so they were asking me about this data from our district gives a universal screener. So they were asking about that data. And so they were asking about, you know, how can we help support these kids that may not show up in the typical ways schools look for gifted kids, right, like high achievement, or really good grades, or are well behaved, those kinds of things. So we were talking about that. And then that assistant principal emailed me and said, oh my God, I think I'm going to cry. My kid, I think, got overlooked. And so I pulled that kid up and I started going through the you know the data with her and we corrected the error that happened at the school. And that would not have happened had we not entered into a conversation of, I said this before, the collaboration, right? Like we're willing to listen and we're willing to problem solve mm-hmm. together however we can to help benefit the, you know, the students that are involved. And so Had she not approached me with the question initially, I never would have learned what had happened and I never would have been able to help her get the services her child deserved. Because in this case, there was an African-American assistant principal and her son was overlooked. And it was probably because of a lot of unintentional bias in the school itself because he didn't fit the mold of what most people might consider gifted.
1: Oh, I, I, I love that. And I think it's a great segue. If So when you explain your everyday life work to the average person who maybe doesn't live in the world of education, how do you help, help people understand what it means to identify or be labeled as gifted?
0: So uh, many times, like especially in my district, which is only one perspective in this grand spectrum of this conversation. Um Many people believed it means um, somebody who needs advanced learning, right? They they need an honors level course. They need something more than what's generally offered in a typical classroom. So, and, uh, and in my district, a lot of that has a lot of social equity tied to that, depending on where you are in the district. So I like to say gifted doesn't mean better. It means different. So these children usually are ignored in the context of how districts typically consider like purchasing curriculum, or developing curriculum, because these are the students who are already, generally speaking, mostly proficient in meeting the standards. And so many people just kind of ignore them and push them off to one side. So for example, like, maybe a school buys um, a collection of books for a grade level as an example, right? Well. And many times these gifted kids, those Lexile levels or the levels of the books are higher than what is purchased for that grade level. And then many Mm -hmm. times they're limited. So, and a good example is my son. He's in first grade and I had the conference with his teacher and she said, oh, he's at level K. Most kids finish the year at level uh, J or level H, but first grade only goes up to level M. And so I'm thinking... Okay, so when my son gets there, what happens? We're just done teaching him. right? Yeah. Not, you know. yeah. <laughs> so I mean this is kind of what happens in the land of gift. It doesn't mean better than it just means different than what is typical, right that we normally anticipate. And so many times what happens is these kids are ignored because we don't know what to do with them.
1: When you have such a unique perspective because you professionally live in the world of gifted education, but now I guess you're saying that you're a parent in the world of gifted education.
0: And let me tell you, being on the other side of the table, not so fun because now I'm getting the answers that I typically used to give people and which is making me more aware of how to be more intentional when talking with parents, right? Like stop using all those glittering generalities, these big educational words that we like to use. So we sound super smart, that don't really mean anything because we really don't know what we're talking about, but it sounds good, that stuff.
1: (laughs) Oh my goodness, that's such a good point.
0: (laughs) It's a good point, it's a good perspective.
2: Um, All right, so that uh, leads to our next question is, so when you share with people who aren't um, living and breathing in the world of education, um, how do you explain to them what NCAGT is and the significance of that organization?
0: You know, I don't think I'd been able to do that had I not become the president of the organization, right? Like I, huh. I mean, I had your sort of standard answer, which is our mission, which is supporting the social, emotional, and academic needs of gifted students. But in reality, we're transitioning into working to try to partner with like-minded people. So this would be like parents who maybe can't get the support they need from their district. This includes educators who maybe don't get the PD in their districts. I mean, let's face it, as an educator, how many times have you sat in a PD that was solely focused on the enrichment and extension of standards for your advanced and gifted learners? Not Never. Often. Never, right? So <laughs> Never. <laughs> but, Yep. And then you have administrators, right? Those who want to be instructional leaders in their school, but maybe don't understand what the differences are because the majority of the students have a different need than those who are outliers, right? So when we talk about social emotional needs, those outliers have the same needs because of the same distance from average. But we tend to focus on those who aren't up to average versus those who have exceeded average, right? So I think NCAGT is really trying to fill a gap Right, where we're trying to bring like-minded people together to collaborate and to be really a champion of an underdog that's ignored, typically speaking, and just bring them together so we can collaborate, to solve problems together, to you know stand up when someone needs to stand up, and then to address all of the concerns together and to celebrate together all of these accomplishments that we can do together.
1: So, in addition to being the president of NCGT, you're also, correct me if I'm wrong, the AIG secondary coordinator and testing yep. specialist for you, Yes. County, correct? Yep. yep. So, what does a day in the life for you in that job look like? Like, do you get to directly service children? What are your roles and responsibilities?
0: Um, In this role, you step out of the classroom. So the only way that I directly serve students is if I'm modeling with a teacher who needs some kind of intervention, right, or who someone who wants to collaborate to hone the art of teaching, right, in a different kind of way that maybe they're just building that skill set. So I help provide that time to build the skill set. So I do not usually directly serve children. My daily job is like pulling a piece of paper out of the hat. And every time you turn around, you're pulling out a new piece of paper. And then you throw (laughs) a bunch of balls up in the air and you wait for them to fall down and they fall (laughs) down at random times. (laughs) So you catch them and you try to give them to the people and then you're constantly like juggling a bunch of things, which probably isn't helpful um, for your listeners. So basically my job is to inform and to clarify and to support all stakeholders in the land of gifted about gifted. (laughs) That's a great description. That's Great.
2: Um, So one thing that we've been asking people um, in our different episodes, and I really enjoyed this part is asking about gifted student profiles. So any students, you know, throughout your time of working in the gifted world that have stood out to you that have been identified as gifted, um, and it can be someone, you know, that just stood out to you, or it could be someone that maybe didn't fit the normal mold of a gifted child.
0: Sure, how many minutes do you got? Because I got lots of examples. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to change author names to Bert or Betty so that I don't. I mean beautiful, you know, so so we don't discuss who they really are but um so Bert number one was the kid who was in my class and I was the AIG um, English language arts teacher for eighth grade. um, Back before I took this position and he never turned anything in ever never ever. And he would sit there in his desk, you know, kind of lean back, slouch down, head resting on the chair rest. So technically he was in the upright position, didn't really look that engaged, didn't really ever take notes or anything. So based on our school policy, I had to send him because of his grade to remediation with my co-teacher next door. And so Bert would go over there during this sort of middle part of the day with lunch, and he would go for this remediation with other kids. And she, she came over and knocked on the door and she's like, what have you been teaching these kids in this class? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, Bert over there is listening to every word that you're saying. He knows all this stuff. He doesn't need to be in there. And I said, I know, but the rule is if the kid has this grade, they have to go in for remediation. Mm-hmm. And so he is Bert the underachiever. That's that's my story about, about that kid. Another one is Bert, the absent-minded professor, right? Made these beautiful projects. They were amazing with all this higher level thinking, had nothing to do with the assignment that I assigned to them. So there really wasn't a way that I could grade it because I'm like, I'd hand him the rubric and be like, hey, this is awesome. But how in the world do I use this rubric to grade what you did? Like, what can we pull out of here so that I can grade it? So he's kind of like the absent-minded professor. And And I'll tell you what, his locker and book bag were like, leaves on the yard, right? Like papers everywhere, like stuffed in there, folded <laughs> no. up, crumpled up. Nothing was in a folder of hole punched or anything, not organized at all, but could find stuff eventually if you asked him for something, right? So he was my absent-minder professor. And then I have Betty, number one, who is the perfectionist. She was going next door with the um, AIG math teacher who was teaching math one, and this student made up a quiz. And she did not get 100%. She got a B, which I think was an 89 at the time. Went into the bathroom and had a meltdown. Now, I I don't know why my classroom has always been by the bathroom. So I was like, (laughs) but it always has for like the 17 years that I taught. I was always next to the bathroom. So I went in there and we had a little chat. She believed that by getting a B on that quiz that her math teacher would hate her think that she was stupid and that she no longer wanted to go to school she wanted me to call her mom to come pick her up because she was just done with eighth grade and the rest of her life
2: oh my god
0: right such and so a was, huge response right? so much heaviness for such a little person and an eighth grade student right and so you know we had a little chat about that that made her smile by the end so she'd come into my class later but that's an example of that sort of like perfectionistic tendency where it challenges your identity when you don't achieve whatever it is that you have in your mind, your high expectation. And another one is Betty number two. She's the overexcitable, uh, emotional one. So um, for our listeners... Uh, If you've never been in a gifted classroom, it is like watching the tide, right? You're never sure which way it's going to go. And then it just goes there and you're like, okay, (laughs) we're going to go with this. And so I had my kids working on Shakespearean plays and each group had a different Shakespearean play. So this group had been together for a while. They were friends. They were doing Macbeth. And I, they were fine. They were working on something about characterization that they were doing. I turn around to another group and I hear smack and a bunch of screaming and one of the girls just bolts out of the classroom, tears pouring down her face. And I turned around and I saw the boy holding his face. (laughs) I was like, "Um, should I be concerned? You're like well she just didn't disagree I was like she didn't just she didn't agree with what he was saying about you know one of the characters and I was like should I go see her in the bathroom like no, no no she'll be back in a minute so she just had this emotional response for whatever reason just needed a few minutes to take care of her whatever she was going through there and came back to the classroom when she was more composed so she's Betty number two my overexcitable child
1: I love how you gave it Four different examples of four completely different personalities. Um, that was one of the things that we really spoke about a lot in our interview with Rick was just how vastly different these gifted learners can truly be, especially yeah. so- socially and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're whenever you were talking <laughs> about, I think
2: it was Bert number two. You were talking about how messy he could be and disorganized. And we've had conversations about how as educators, we need to like be okay. And like, have like some like grace and flexibility with all of that, because we were talking about how, you know, they may, it may not look like they know where things are, but they may know exactly (laughs) where it is. You just need to be like, okay with it. Cause like, I am a person who likes, I mean, you can't tell if you looked at my desk right now, but usually I'm very organized. And as a teacher, I feel like I forget that, you know, maybe they need something different in their desk than what I would like them to have in that desk or the way I would want it. And that really made me think of that. And every single example you were giving, I feel like I had kids come to mind of like a perfectionist or a kid who maybe didn't show their best, I felt like in class, but knew they knew it, they could do it all. So I just feel like that was very, very helpful for me.
1: Oh, great. Well, and and I just think it's, you mentioned earlier how gen, gen ed classroom teachers don't necessarily get any PD on how to identify and support gifted learners. So we wanted to ask you, how can general education teachers adapt their daily curriculums or maybe their classroom routines how can they adapt all of that to meet the needs of gifted and talented students? Because a lot of times these gifted and talented students aren't with the AIG teacher all day long, five days a week.
0: Great, Great question. So I'm going to preface this by saying this is probably not something a first year teacher could do because your first year, you're in survival mode, right? So um, for your listeners who are in that boat, cut yourself some slack. You do you, learn the curriculum learn your niche, learn your craft, and then from there, improve, right? So always be reflecting back to look at how can you improve for the next year. So that's okay. So we always start with baby steps. For our friends who are maybe more veteran teachers, you have things you are comfortable in teaching, right? And you do them a certain way. And maybe you were like me that you kind of have the same sort of framework in place, but maybe you reinvent the wheel every year because you're just not happy with whatever, you know, is going on. So with that in mind, it's important to one, know where your students are. If you don't know what your students already know, then you're teaching for the sake of teaching without considering what the students need to learn. So you need to know where are they? So pre-assessments is something. And when I say pre-assessments, I don't mean give them another test because I don't know how many districts, but our district is very keen on benchmarking a lot with a lot of things. And with the recent, data coming out with this idea of learning loss, which some of that is adult constructed, I'm just going to say, right, Um, (laughs) is causing decisions to be made where we're focused on remediation. So with that in mind, as an adult, like how many times do you love to sit down and do what you absolutely suck at? I'm just saying that that does not engage anybody in any kind of learning whatsoever at all. So we need to shift the perspective to what's your strength and how can I capitalize on that to help make your weakness stronger and more. When I say stronger, not more weakness, but make it as a, you know, more of a strength. Instead of focusing on what you're terrible at, so you get disenfranchised with school, now you hate learning and now you don't want to come anymore, right? We got to be intentional and we have to even consider the unintentional learning that we're teaching our kids. So, first thing is know where your kids are, second thing is keep your instructional plan flexible. Like I mentioned before, teaching gifted kids is like watching the tide, if they are bored they're going to act out so more than likely the gifted kids in your class may be behavioral problems, which we don't ever as teachers like to think of negative traits as being something that's thought of as being a positive like gifted right, a lot of times that'll come out in defiant behavior. A lot of times that'll come out with argumentative kids who are like just let me teach it to everybody right? Or the one, ooh, my favorite, this is my favorite one, who is always up there correcting every spelling error that you have or pointing out where you made (laughs) a mistake. Those kids, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So those are kind of like quick, like just um, litmus tests, right? To see like, or ooh, a really good one too, the marker caps on your dry erase board. If you want to mess with gifted kids, you put the mismatched cap on the marker body, (laughs) <laughs> or my favorite is point them in different directions so they're not so your markers aren't all pointed to the left or to the right it's like a random assortment of things your gifted kids will get up and switch the caps and they will put all of the markers so they are all facing the same way or they will line them up in rainbow order right so they will try to make order out of chaos that's another way you can kind of tell those are your ocd kids who have to have it a very particular way, those are like your perfectionistic kids right there. That's a quick Mm -hmm. test, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So you gotta be flexible because if you know what they need to learn, then you can flex your instructional plan to meet their needs. The next thing is to backwards design. So always plan with the end in mind. What is it you want your kids to know, understand and do with that standard? And then you need to ask yourself if you wanna differentiate would this be something all kids would be interested in? Should all kids be doing this assignment and could all kids be successful in doing this assignment? If the answer is yes to those questions, it is not differentiated. So that's the quick test to tell whether or not you've backwards designed with your highest level learner in mind. Because many times in teacher school, we're all taught, well, you start with your lowest level and then we add on for our more advanced students, which creates that whole, oh, here's another worksheet. Oh, why don't you be the the tutor to this kid over here? Or how about you run down to the library and just read a book until class time is up kind of thing is because we think of advanced needing more, more, more when it really should be something different.
1: I think that's such a huge misconception for so many teachers is Mm -hmm. a giving extra work, having an extra worksheet prepared whenever the student finishes the work early or allowing that student to be the teacher of another child. a lot of teachers see that as the solution and one of the only solutions. And that's just not it.
0: Well, you're teaching the kid. It does not pay to be smart, right? Because you get punished with more work. And now you're setting up animosity in your peer relationships that sort of escalate when you get to middle school, right? You think you're better than me because. And then we get that whole like teacher's pet thing and that whole kind of negative connotation around the stereotypes associated with words like nerd, right? Or smart. And in America, we have this love affair with the idea of average, right? And average is a myth. If you wanna learn more about that, Todd Rose on TEDx, is an amazing TEDx speech, it'll change your life.
2: (laughs) Writing that down, (laughs) that's so cool. That just, all those things make me like, I'm just like sitting here thinking about so many things and my like kids and I just had a conversation with my class this year. About, or this week about um, how there will be times because something this is this right here what we're talking about is something I've always struggled with because it's just hard it, it's 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 really hard to like make it actually happen in your classroom um, because I think like we've talked about we haven't been trained how to make it happen in our classroom like we're trying we want to reach all of our students and make sure everybody's getting what they need but it's just sometimes it's not the focus on a lot of people. Um, but something I talked to my kids about was how sometimes you're not going to be doing the same thing as the people next to you. And that's okay. Cause we all need different things. And that right there, me talking to them is something that I've learned throughout this podcast journey of like, that you're not all going to be doing the same thing. You don't all need the same thing. And it's not like you need to like worry about that. Cause, cause I've really made an intention just in this past like month to give like different things to different kids for what they need. And we've been working really hard on like making that doable. And Sustainable and not running us ragged. Sustainable, yeah.
0: I'm super excited, excited for you to take that first step on this journey. Like that is amazing. Yeah, it's exciting and it makes me feel. And they're more. I feel like there's more engagement too.
2: And like you said, they're not just getting more work; they're Mm -hmm. getting different work, and that that's powerful for them.
0: And another thing that helps too is to tell the kids why it's important. The why many times teachers assign things and it's the because I said so, or we have to master the standard because the state says so. Um, That never works to motivate anybody, like, right? Like when you were a kid and your mom said, because I said so, what did you go do? Yeah, exactly what you told you not to do. (laughs) (laughs) But to answer your question, I don't really have a preference over the other, um, just because right now with And my kid goes to school in a different state and they have different laws. And so my kid cannot be accelerated, even if we wanted them to. Like our only options would be private school or homeschooling, as an example. Mm -hmm. And really, families are limited by whatever the parents are savvy enough to either find out more about or learn about. And that's only if they know how to ask the right question, right? Because schools have intentionally set up policies and procedures for subterfuge, which means I make it so confusing that nobody can access this information. Therefore, we don't have to do anything different, <laughs> right? And, and that's that's how every school has done that in a way to kind of perpetuate what we've got going. And then we're surprised when the students don't do what we, you know, we expected them to do. Well, and that was
1: another thing we were we were wanting to ask you about is because our hope for this podcast is that the listeners aren't just going to be teachers and educators but parents too so that they have a spot to learn how to advocate for their kids because like you just said it's the it's just not very friendly and welcoming a lot of times when parents go in to advocate for their kids so what should parents do if they feel like their gifted learners needs are not being met like what would be maybe the first step
0: the first step is collect the data to tell your story and i can give you an example of this cuz i'm in it right now. The second step is don't get emotional about it. That that's really hard when you know you feel like you need to advocate for your kid and you're the only one yet no one's going to help, you know, collaborate with you, right? Cuz you always get sort of that standard answer back and that which is the other way of saying we don't really know what to do with your kid. Right? <laughs> so by collecting data, um, you are kind of putting together a collection of student work right to take into your teacher conference now in elementary school that's a mandatory thing. Um, teachers initiate that conference at least once a year right and you can say look, you know and you start asking questions like here's what my kid has done. How can you differentiate for my kid. And that leads to a bunch of sort of different kinds of questions so an example being my son broke his leg at recess about a month ago. And so he could not have that independence that he needed to return to school. So we got the pleasure of um, using what the school provided to us to teach him at home. Now, I'll give you a little background (laughs) about my family. So my husband got in trouble in school because he never showed his work on math. This is a man who can calculate the interest on a car loan quicker than the dealership man can type it into the calculator. He's also the kind of man that if you flash him your credit card, he's memorized your number, like just has oh, an affinity wow. for numbers, right? That's like amazing. loves them. Well, oh my, my son is not, you know, is an apple not so far from the tree when it comes to sort of like math. And so during this time when he was home, you know, I asked for work thinking I was doing the right thing and I got this manila folder of worksheets, a myriad of worksheets, so many worksheets, (laughs) in which the teacher emailed said, I didn't know that I used so many worksheets in my class until I had to copy them and put them in this folder for you. Right? Okay, so on these worksheets, This is my favorite one. It was was for the fall, so it's a pumpkin. And the pumpkin had dotted lines. So you cut it out into six different rectangles and each rectangle had one equation on it. And this equation equaled up to 10, right? So you solve the equation and then you would glue these pieces that you just cut out onto page number two to reconstruct this pumpkin. So my question is, did you even need to know how to do math to move the pumpkin picture from page one to page two? The impetus was, oh, if you get the right answer, then you'll be able to reconstruct this picture of a pumpkin that you just cut out, right? So you don't really need to use math in order to do this math activity. And then we had worksheet after worksheet of one through 10. Now my son, is into Yu Gi Oh!, which is like this car- trading card game that has these monsters with this attack and defense of in the thousands and hundreds, in which you're multiplying and dividing depending on what the special rules are for the card. My kid also loves to own one side of the board on Monopoly and put all the houses and hotels and like, you know, running out of money, charging you rent. So I just asked, Hey, could you like maybe put another digit on these math problems to make it a little more challenging for him? And do you know what my answer was? Well, don't worry when you get back to school we'll be adding three-digit numbers when he gets back and so he will be challenged when he comes back mm. and I was like oh nuts <laughs> and that was just the math side of things like the the language arts thing was like 20 and I'm exaggerating right because I'm mm. a parent and I'm passionate about it but he had like this little noun like book that you kind of see in elementary school on teachers pay teachers that has like a collection of like 20 worksheets on a half page of paper that you you're going to color them in person place your thing and then you're going to cut them out and stick them in the same columns and now you're going to move them now not noun, and but then I also had the big worksheets that were this kind of the same thing 20 of those to go along with this work this little book to say look we did nouns and I'm like oh my god how many times do I need to show you this kid has mastered this before we just move on mm-hmm so
1: (laughs) that's frustrating that's so frustrating
0: it is and so as a parent when you go in and you're talking to your um teacher and like in the example she said to me your son's at level k first grade only goes to level m that's as high as we can go and so my you know my question I didn't ask her at the time because I was kind of stunned with this idea of you mean okay, so you're good at reading and you're going to be punished because you can't go above this certain level. That's like telling a weightlifter, you can't lift more than 10 pounds because it's your first year of lifting weights. I'm just saying. So that's <laughs> question, a great analogy, right? And so you should should be asking things like, so what happens when my kid reaches that level, right? What happens when, like on these, these worksheets for math, when he's solving these problems, he did five worksheets in less than 10 minutes. I think that shows, and he got them all right. And I And then we had this, you know, base 10 blocks and we had the number line jumping with the adding and the subtracting. I'm like, same thing again and again and again. I'm like, how many times do we need to cover one through 10 or one through 20? Like this kid is multiplying thousands- You know, these numbers by double digits in his head. And he's tracking not only, you know, his life points in Yu Gi Oh, which starts at 8,000 and his dad's life points, he's tracking his own strategy versus his opponent's strategy. Right. So I'm like, this kid clearly can do more than just add 20.
1: (laughs) So, in your perfect world, what would be their response to you? What would be a solution that would satisfy you?
0: I would hope they would let him climb as far as he wants to go
1: by sending him to another classroom of like a higher grade level for math, like during the math portion of the day? Realistically, what would that look like in a, in an educational
0: setting? Right. In elementary, that's common for kids to go up a grade level for whatever subject area may be their strength area. The problem comes when there's a transition space, right? So mm-hmm. that transition space is when they would leave that building to go to the next grade level. And so with the sort of more acceptance of that virtual platforms, we have things like the NC Virtual High School, which now, you know, if you're a sixth grader, you can take math One. Yeah, I'm just saying, <laughs> you know what I mean, and we have special schools in North Carolina like Governor's School, which isn't for middle school students, but if you're an AIG student you have these other opportunities because what happens over time is you're accelerating into high school content quicker right, which opens the door for early graduation, opens the door for these special schools like the NC School of Science and Math or the NC School of the Arts or the Governor's School. And then our whole like UNC University um, agreement where they kind of all function together as one sort of entity really helps our students into that early graduation, dual enrollment, and those kinds of things. The problem is the gap between elementary and middle and the gap between middle and high school.
1: Well, and I I really do think that the world that we live in now, though, with how accessible things are because of technology, I could see it being a little bit easier for students to maybe receive uh, the specific type of math that they need, like an advanced math doing a virtual class. Then they wouldn't necessarily have to leave the school building maybe. So problem solving in that way maybe could be like a, a solution? Would be,
0: well, like for the reading thing, like if he exceeded level M, he can still be in the same classroom and still get instruction from his teacher. He's just reading a different book.
1: Right. right.
0: And then for math problems, maybe he during the time where like maybe like this is one of the strategies is if your child has already demonstrated mastery on something, you can compact the curriculum, which means you're removing the pieces they've already shown mastery upon to allow them to buy back time to investigate Um, either something they're interested in or to extend and enrich the standards in something else, right? But those extension and enrichments aren't just open to gifted kids. They should be open to all your kids, right? So if one of your kids is super interested in something, they're gonna excel in it. And a good example of that is I had a, um, back in the day, when I was in elementary school, (laughs) teaching (laughs) elementary school, I had a second grader reading Harry Potter. Now, was it on his reading level? Absolutely not. It was way above his reading level, but he wanted to read that book so bad that he just did it. Mm. Right. And like uh, one time I was at a book fair and this little sixth grader, I was teaching eighth grade at the time, was looking at this book called The Bikini Murders. And she kept picking up, putting it down, picking up, putting it down. And I was like, did you want to buy that book? And she just looked at me and said, my teacher won't let me. It's not my Lexile level. And I was like, honey, if you want to buy that book, buy that book. Here's my room number. If you hate it or can't read it, I'll buy it off you. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) And, and it turned out that that child was actually the child of the school psychologist. Like I didn't know who that was at the time. And that inspired her to read the entire series. Her kid had always hated to read. So we just removed the barrier, right, that we as adults have self-imposed on children because Mm -hmm. we believe they can't do it, and we keep reminding them they can't do it because we set all these limits on them, why don't we just flip the conversation and look to empower them or inspire them to do the things they never considered they could do? What would that do? I love that. Oh my gosh, it just gives me chills. That
2: reminds me of this book I read in college. It was called Reading Magic, remember who wrote it, but it was, it was really good. And it taught, it basically talked a whole lot about teaching kids to learn, to love reading before they can start, like before you expect them to start growing in their reading, if they don't love it, if they don't realize that reading takes you to this magical world, like another place and see the beauty of that, then why would they even care to learn how to read higher level books? Like they're not going to care.
0: Right. And think how excruciating that is to sit through all of those practice things where you're reading a passage and you're answering a multiple choice question about whatever, right? Like that's excruciating if you hate to read, right? So why not flip the script so that we inspire this love of reading and then, you know, help them dissect the text for those, those higher level things like inferencing or looking at the author's sort of personal bias on the topic. You know, you can get in all these interesting conversations about perspectives and that's when you get into the really, really good stuff, right? so
1: <laughs> And
0: that goes down like the rabbit hole of like
2: standardized testing because there's yeah. so many times where we're like, well, they didn't do well on this. Well, it was a passage about like something boring, something they would never have cared about, like. And that's
1: mustard. so hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A passage about a dude that lived 50 years ago. That's kind of you know, like yeah. no
2: real no interest
1: into that.
0: I bet you if you put in the elementary school uh passage something about Pokemon, I bet you they would all read it. oh, oh nice. yeah. yeah, what a great idea. <laughs> that game's also great for math if you're wondering. Like it's awesome. I'll teach you how to play if you want to learn how. <laughs> oh my gosh, so fun.
1: So, Danny, what instructional activities best develop complex processes, such as evaluating and categorizing?
0: So, when, as a teacher, the more open-ended a question is, the more possible answers there are. And then you can get into the discussion with the children, having them categorize what this class thinks as to which one is the best answer. Or if you want to mess with math kids, you give them um, an equation where you have four wrong answers and you ask them which one's the most right, as an example. So you have them thinking about and applying the processes you've asked them to solve these problems right, but it's in reverse.
1: Look, you've inspired, Catherine. She's writing this down right now.
0: (laughs) I just think of this group of kids who would like lose it with a question like that, but they'd love it. Right, and then another one like if you want to go down the route like fairy tales this was something that um, Colin seal talked about he does the thinking like a lawyer stuff. About Goldilocks and the three bears like we never stopped to question like Goldilocks is breaking and entering right so. like The sort of legalities of what's going on in this process, you can really take this to higher levels with the stuff that we already have it's just thinking about it in a different kind of way. So open-ended, inquiry-based. And if you want to see an example of a really cool uh, type of lesson, it's called inductive thinking lesson. You just Google cult of pedagogy, inductive learning. And there's a whole example there about how to do that type of thinking with figurative language. So basically you have your examples and you have some non-examples and you ask the kids, what is the rule of these examples, like right. So you're now comparing and contrast and what do they have in common to be in each list? And what's the rule that creates both these lists? And then you add extra examples that will be where most of the kids' sort of misconception would would be about whatever your concept is and more non-examples and you have them rethink their rules. So they discover what the rule is and understand why the rule is a rule instead of you just delivering a rule. Right. So for example, nouns. Worksheets aside, you could say a noun is a person, place, or thing. Well, you could have your examples of nouns, right? And you'd have your non-examples of nouns, and you'd ask them, what's the rule for these words? And then add some more, right? So now kids are constructing that idea that a noun is a person, place, or thing, not you just delivering it to them so they're engaged in the learning they're doing the lifting and the thinking to develop their understanding and then they're even mapping their own schema versus you just delivering a piece of information for them to memorize as an example Um, another if you want to google some like research based strategies those are some things you can Google. But TABA is a really well-known one for um, categorizing information. This is where you might take, um, I've seen a teacher do this with vocabulary words, take all of their vocabulary words and have them categorize the vocabulary words into categories and then have them go back and then recategorize them so they have less categories. So you gotta think about how these words work together or don't work together or how you're doing them. You could also do that with like the classification Uh, classification system of like the phylums of the animal kingdom right so you just give them a bunch of cards of a bunch of different animals and then you're like okay now you categorize them and then you like how did you group them okay now if you have to regroup them so that you don't have any like leftovers or the other pile right or the we this is our everything pile because kids will do that to you right put them all in one pile like yeah we're done (laughs) the challenge you're thinking then recategorize those back into different projects and then say, okay, so what, what are some of the rules that we came up with? So again, it's still inductive thinking. It's just a different way of using longer lists of things that are like kind of your content vocabulary words or they could be your science words or your math concepts or maybe your social studies um, like social concepts that might be in there as another way to do that another one is Paul's wheel of reasoning which kind of walks you through almost like a scientific process of problem solving so it's a nice system for kids to kind of check off where are they in this process because at any time if you find that you've made an error in your logic you're going to back up right Back up to where you made the mistake so you can self-correct, which is invaluable when it comes to being a lifelong learner, right? When you can learn to self-correct and then, you know, go on through the process again. So those are some of the the ways that one can do that.
1: Those are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, You mentioned um, think like a lawyer with the, the fairy tales, the goldilocks and the three bears. One of my favorite things that I've done so far this school year in my advanced reading class is having them almost create like ethical report cards for some of the characters in the book where they had to go through and look at kind of like their actions and their decisions and their choices and their personalities of who they are and how they're treating other people. And they got to be the teacher and grade them by their ethical choices that they had made. And it was oh, really cool. interesting to see them go in and do that. I had a lot of fun. And, and then The discourse that happened when they disagreed with one another, how that point of view of how people are viewing this same situation differently, and then you're teaching them to respectfully disagree and have a conversation about it. That was one of my favorite things. things. Yeah.
0: Have you heard of Edward de Bono's thinking hats? No, uh -uh. it's a more structured approach to different perspectives because gifted kids always assume they're right. And that is the end of the story, right? Like they don't understand that there's holes in their thinking. So that's why they never ask questions. So (laughs) you can capitalize on that as a teacher. And thinking hats is one of those things. Thinking keys is another one. Uh, My favorite one is depth and complexity, but that's a whole nother thing all by itself. But thinking hats is, I think, seven or eight different colored hats. And you can just Google de Bono's thinking hats and you can find a thousand and one like lists of what it is, but like one hat is just the facts right? One hat is the pessimist. Everything is wrong all the time. It'll always be wrong. You have the optimist. Yay. It's always going to be right. It's going to be awesome, right? Then you got a green one, a blue one, and a red one. So each one is a different perspective. And when you have kids sort of like maybe start in a group where that group is all the same color and they analyze a piece of text, or maybe you're looking at some kind of social issue in social studies, or maybe it's some kind of piece of science you're learning about or whatever, and then you jigsaw them. So you've got one color hat per group. That collaborative conversation conversation is going to yield so much more learning than what the teacher could do with stand and deliver notes
1: I love that I'm teaching point of view right now so my wheels are just turning as to how I can what I can do next week I
0: think you're gonna love it like it's super like you can just put a piece of construction paper in the middle of the table so they know what color they are you can just at their middle school you just tell them or hand them a marker with the wrong color cap on it. You know, whatever you like to do there. I've seen them so virtual.
1: That's the thing is oh, okay. taking these, and but it's still possible. There's definitely, you know, breakout rooms and yeah. jam boards and all kinds of things that I can use, but uh, that kind of adds like another layer of thinking and planning. So each
0: breakout room could be its own color, right? Yeah.
1: Oh, and yeah. Then,
0: and if they had a slide deck where they, you know, get that on their screen before they go into the breakout room or use the jam board, you know, whatever for each, you know, each one has their own board then yeah so that collaborative piece when you jigsaw them and then you come back to a large group discussion Mm -hmm. that's where you're going to get that shared inquiry into which is that higher level thinking right that synthesis of information to create new ideas um that's when the magic happens
1: beautiful i'm catherine i'm imagining lexi editing this and she's going to be listening Uh, lexi is the person who helps us edit the podcast and i know she's going to be just eating this up. She loves.
2: (laughs) Well Well, hey Lexi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right, Danny. So how can our listeners get in contact with you?
0: Sure. I'm going to give you my N C A G T email. Um, I check it every day and, and I will email you back. So it's D S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N, at ncag
1: Beautiful. And then Catherine, you want to hit her with our controversial question.
2: So the last thing I want to talk about is the divide that the term giftedness causes. Um, sometimes this term can lead to misconceptions and can even prevent students from being identified because maybe they don't check those preconceived boxes. So would you say that you agree with the term gifted or would you agree that it is problematic? Um, And if so, would you rename it something else?
0: So I agree that the term gifted has baggage and that baggage is heavy baggage that's causing a lot of issues right now. I don't really have a better term, but my concern is if we don't spend time acknowledging that some kids need something different and we're not willing to empower and inspire them to go to the places in which they never thought they could go. It doesn't matter what kind of term that we have or what we call it, because we are just catering to this love affair of average, where we should be looking at our outliers and investing in our outliers, because those are going to be the ones, right, that come up with these outside the box, whack-a-mole ideas that are somehow going to change the world, for better or for worse, right, depends on how that goes, um, in the future. And we're not willing right now to embrace this notion that some kids need something different and we're not willing even to invest in what that difference is as like public entities and we really don't have any agreement upon what the term gifted means in the first place right every state has a different definition there's no like really I mean there's kind of like a federal guideline kind of thing but there's no agreed upon definition so here we have a whole field with no agreement we have schools working To put these things in place where there's no agreement and here we're trying to advocate for these students we agree that they're there and they need something but we don't really know what to do because there is a whole cultural shift that has to happen not only in in school institutions but also within the American culture and that's going to take more than just education to turn the corner for us to really fully embrace this idea of different Beyond sports, like we're okay with it as long as it's professional sports, right? You can get paid millions of dollars for being super awesome at a sport of your choice, but you cannot be paid millions of dollars for being smart in school unless you're savvy enough to go to YouTube University and advocate for yourself, right? I mean, there's kids out there right now in these sort of Ivy League schools who are pulling down six-figure salaries, not because they're super smart in the sort of way that we anticipate in school, but because they're savvy enough to know that in this day and age, right, you got to be an influencer, you got to have a following. It's much different than just getting an A in school, right, and reading, writing, and arithmetic and being able to go to college to get a piece of paper. It's much more. So until we acknowledge that this much more is different than how we all learned in the past, and that all these learners are different and need support in a different kind of way, we're never really going to change the problem itself in order to support anything that outlies of average. That
2: was beautiful. That was so good. I love oh,
1: thanks. That. Wow.
0: I'm just passionate about it. My face is all on fire. I'm like, ah. Wow.
1: <laughs> Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for your time. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us.
0: This oh, is I, beautiful. I'm like, I'm tickled pink just to be invited. And I'm willing to talk to anybody and everybody about gifted. So thank you for inviting me, ladies.